0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary PSL. Here's Pastor Mike with the message, Inexpressible Joy. Okay, so like I said, I'm excited uh, to start our study today in Paul's inspired letter to the church of Philippi. And so even though Philippians is relatively short, it's just four chapters long, you're going to see that it's filled with all these encouraging principles and truths that are going to help us in our walk with Christ. And so my plan is, Lord willing, to spend 10 weeks in Philippians. And so from now until early September, from July 4th weekend all the way until and through Labor Day weekend, we're going to soak in the truths of this uplifting letter. And so uh, since the theme of Philippians is joyful living, I'm calling our series A Summer of Joy a summer of joy, and I don't know about you, but after the year that we all had in 2020, I think this might be a timely study. And so I wanna look first at quick facts about the letter. And so first of all, you know this, the author, of course, the Apostle Paul. The recipients is the Church of Philippi, and Paul wrote this letter right around AD 61. He wrote it from Rome while he was under house arrest. And so this is his first imprisonment in Rome. And the theme, as I already said, is joyful living. So if you're new to the Bible, you need to know that Paul was imprisoned twice in the city of Rome. His first imprisonment was from about AD 60 to AD 62, like it says there, he was under house arrest, we believe chained 24-7 uh, to a Roman soldier, Roman soldiers in shifts, while he was waiting for his trial between, uh, before Caesar Nero. And so he's there, he's in Rome, he's there under house arrest for two years, he's waiting for his trial, finally he has his day in court, he appears before Nero himself, uh, we don't know the details of how that all went. Some historians believe that C, uh, Caesar Nero, who was kind of normal up to that point, after he heard the gospel from Paul and rejected Christ, that he literally got worse and worse and became insane. But nonetheless, Paul had his day in court, he was released, and he engaged in some ministry that we don't know anything about. This would be post-Acts. Acts has 28 chapters, and so this would be kind of like the Acts 29 Uh, Ministry of the Apostle Paul. A few years later, right around AD 65, 66, Paul is re-arrested. He's taken back and he's put in jail in Rome, this time not under house arrest. We believe in a uh, terrible dungeon there in Rome. And he was not released this time, but he actually gave his life. He was martyred for his faith in Jesus Christ. And so Philippians was written during his first Roman imprisonment. His second Roman imprisonment, if you wanna read a little bit of Paul and how he was at that time, you can read 2 Timothy. That's his last public words before he loses his head um, uh, for Christ. But this first uh, Roman imprisonment, AD 60 to 62, this is when he writes the, the letter that we're gonna study now for the next 10 weeks. He writes it around the same time that he writes what's called the other prison epistles. And so the prison epistles would be Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. He writes those four letters in our New Testament while chained to the Roman soldier. Now, before we get into verse one, before we get into Paul's opening remarks to the church of Philippi, I want to spend some time today in this introductory uh, message. I want to spend some time on the historical background to the letter. Then we're going to spend a good amount of time looking at the theme of the letter. And then finally at the end of the message, when I don't have any time left, we're going to uh, briefly look at Paul's opening remarks in verses 1 through 5. Okay, so we begin today with the historical background to Philippians, and that can be found in Acts chapter 16. You may wanna follow along, I'm just gonna tell you the story, I'll put verses up on the screen from Acts 16 today as we develop the historical background. Paul's on his second missionary journey, and the time is right around A.D. 50, okay? And so this is is just about 20 years, listen, after the resurrection of Christ. If you're new to the Bible, you need to understand, as I've said over and over, that the New Testament is not the product of myth or legend. No, this is written, I mean, I mean Paul was on a second missionary journey just 20 years um, after the resurrection, and Luke, the doctor and the author of Acts, is writing this stuff down. This is, the New Testament is the product of eyewitness accounts. So what was Paul doing in AD 50? He was traveling around with his buddy Silas and what they were doing is that they were strengthening existing churches and they were planting new churches. We call this Paul's Second Missionary Journey. You all have maps probably in the back of your Bible in case you can't see what's on the screen, Um, but there you have Paul's Second Missionary Journey and it begins in Syria. And so right now on the right side, the far right side of the screen, in all caps, if you see Syria, can you say amen so I know you're looking? All right, so just a couple cities above Syria, you have Antioch. Now if I was a pastor 2,000 years ago, I'd want a pastor in that church because the church of Antioch of Syria was multi-generational, multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-racial, healthy, filled with the Holy Spirit, missionary-sending, awesome church, okay? And so they sent out Paul and Silas on the second missionary journey for Paul, and they go from Antioch to Derby, to Lystra, and that's where Paul meets and wins Timothy to the Lord, and then they go to Iconium, and they end up all the way over on the left side or upper left uh, side, kinda center side of your screen in Mysia to the area of Troas, the city of Troas near the Aegean Sea. Modern day Turkey, they're traveling, donkey, camel, foot, whatever, establishing churches, strengthening churches. They arrive in Troas. It's in Troas that Paul has an amazing vision. And so in the middle of the night, Paul has a vision. It's a man from Macedonia. And the man from Macedonia, Macedonia by the way, modern day Greece. The man from Macedonia appears before Paul. He's standing there and he's urging Paul, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so Paul receives a clear leading from the Lord. Now listen. Whenever you receive a clear leading from the Lord, it causes certain emotions to well up inside of your heart. Whenever I receive a very clear leading from the Lord, the first emotion I feel is thankfulness, right? God, the eternal God, the uncreated God who has no beginning and no end. You think he has better things to do, but here's what he does. Because he's far from finished Uh, With his work on earth, he comes to people like you and me. And by his Holy Spirit, he speaks to us and he lets us know what his plan is for our lives. And for that, we should be thankful. And not only that, man, we, uh, yeah, we should thank God for the fact that he still speaks today. And we get excited about what's ahead. And then we start to get passionate about, man, when can I get started? When God speaks, when God leads when God lets us know because ladies and gentlemen don't you know that when God speaks and you're following him and you're smack dab in the middle of God's will that that's where meaning and purpose comes in life but see that's not the experience perhaps of some people here today or perhaps of some people who are watching right now online perhaps on this July 4th weekend in 2021 some of you are in neutral spiritually speaking. You're just kinda coasting along in your Christianity and you're not really accomplishing much for the Lord. Now with all the love in my heart as your pastor, I just wanna challenge you today that if I am talking to you, more importantly, if God is speaking to you, you need to get it in gear and start to seek God with all of your heart. And you say, why? Here's why. Because you need a fresh vision, just like God gave Paul a fresh vision, a man from Macedonia. Come over here and help us. You need a fresh vision from heaven as to what God wants you to do in your life. You need a fresh vision from heaven as to what your next steps should be. Because, again, this is where you find meaning. This is where you find purpose in your life. And this is how you glorify God in your life when you're following him, when you're in the middle of his will. Some of you may be watching from home and you haven't come back to church yet. And you haven't come back to church yet, not not for health reasons, but because you've slidden back into a apathetic spirituality. My challenge to you today is to come back to the local church and begin to connect and serve and invest and glorify God with your life. Because church is not sitting at home watching a video. And I understand those who are, are, are doing it for health reasons. I get that. I'm not talking about people like that. I'm talking about people who in 2020 and the beginning of 2021 have slidden back into this horrible spiritual apathy. If I were you, I would make it a top priority to hear from the Lord to pray like you never prayed before, to fast if you're medically able, to get counsel from solid saints, to find out what is it that God wants me to do, and then hear this, when God speaks, man, you gotta move. You gotta get up, you gotta take that venture of faith. You cannot become lackadaisical. There's too much on the line. There's a Macedonian man or woman, so to speak, who needs your help and God wants to use you. You say, who, me? I'm a nobody. God loves using nobodies. He wants to use you to touch lives. He wants to use you to encourage people. And so wait until he gives you a clear leading. But when he does, launch out. Take your venture of faith. This is exactly what Paul and Silas did in Acts 16.10 when Paul had seen the vision. What's that next word, everybody? Immediately, they didn't wait around. We sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, I want you to notice on the top right part of your screen the word we. Luke is the author of the book of Acts. That means that he joined Paul, Timothy, Silas in Troas, and he got on a boat with those missionaries, and they headed out. And so again, if the Lord is leading you to go somewhere, man, you need to go. You say, I don't know how I'm gonna pay for it. Where God guides, he provides. You just need to take your step of faith. And maybe for most of you, God's calling you to stay right here in Port St. Lucie. But here's the thing, you got to get into the core group of a local church. You gotta become active in your faith. You gotta begin to connect and you gotta begin to serve and you gotta begin to invest to glorify God with your life. Again, there's a Macedonian man or woman who needs your help. And so as we go back to this map, Paul's second missionary journey, they're now in Mysia. And so if you see Asia in the top middle part of your screen, can you say amen? That's not the Orient, that's modern day Turkey. And so that's what they're doing. They're crossing modern day Turkey, strengthening churches, planting churches. They end up in Mysia, in Troas. Paul has the vision. They get into a boat, and they cross the northern part of the Aegean Sea, and they end up, top left part of your screen, in the town of, pretty significant town, of Philippi. Philippi. Now, a little bit about the history of Philippi. If you go back from the second missionary journey, AD 50, 400 or so years to, um, I'm sorry, yes, 356 B.C., so 400 years to 356 B.C., we find out how Philippi got its name. It was called something else, but there was a guy, his name was Philip II of Macedon. He was the father of Alexander the Great, and he kinda liked himself, and the reason I know that is because he named the city after himself, Philippi. That's how it gets its name, 356 B.C. You fast forward in history all the way to 42 B.C. and secular historians believe that this is the most important thing that ever happened in that city's history and that is the great battle of Philippi, 42 B.C. You say, what was that? It wasn't Roman Empire against you know, their enemies. It was an internal conflict. And so you had Octavian and Mark Antony And they joined forces and they fought against Brutus and Cassius who were responsible for the assassination of Julius Caesar. And these guys come together and they clash right outside of Philippi. And Mark Antony and Octavian overcome the forces of Brutus and Cassius and that pretty much ends the Roman Republic and now the Roman Empire, at least in 27 BC, is birthed with Octavian, becoming Caesar Augustus. His name is in the Bible, Luke chapter two, I think it's verse one, when Caesar Augustus gives a proclamation that the whole world should register for taxes, that's the guy. He's Octavian, he's Caesar Augustus. And so uh, at that time, 42 BC, the city of Philippi becomes a Roman colony That's big stuff in those days. That meant that its residents were Roman citizens who enjoyed the same rights as the residents of cities over in Italy where Rome was. And so this is a significant town and Luke in Acts 16 talks about its significance. Um, So secular historians believe 42 BC, that's the biggest thing that ever happened to Philippi. I don't agree, I think. The most important thing that ever happened to Philippi happened in AD 50 when the apostle Paul walked in town. He walked in town with the good news of Jesus Christ. And what did he do? As was his custom, he looked around for a synagogue and he couldn't find one. Apparently there's no synagogue in Philippi. That means it's predominantly like 99.9% Gentile. You see, according to Jewish custom, you needed at least 10 Jewish men to start a synagogue in any town. And so there's no synagogue. That means there's not even 10 Jewish men in Philippi. But even though there's not a lot of men who are Jews, there's some women who are Jews. And these women like to pray on Saturday. You see, apparently every Saturday on the Sabbath, the Jewish women in Philippi would go down by the riverside just outside of town. And they would Pray to Yahweh God, the one true God. And so one of the ladies in the prayer group, her name was Lydia, and she was a seller of purple garments, which was a rare, expensive commodity in those days. And so, you know, Paul, whenever he has an opening in conversation, he's gonna share the Gospel. And that's exactly what he did. And I wanna encourage all of us today, Man, when, when God opens the doors as we're in conversation with people, we should share Jesus. Do you know, you don't have to get through the whole plan of salvation, A through Z, and try to lead somebody in prayer. Man, you, you can plant, you can water, God's the one who gives the increase, but we should be sharing the love of Jesus. At least give them a track, give him a, an invitation to church that's on your seat, give him a Gospel of John, but man, share the good news. There's Macedonian people who need the Lord. And Paul shares the gospel and lo and behold, Lydia comes to Christ. In Acts chapter 16, it says that the Lord opened her heart. I love that. The reason I love that is because sometimes in evangelism, you feel like all the pressure's on you and you gotta convert somebody. Nothing could be further from the truth. Ladies and gentlemen, God is not willing that anybody should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And he is the one who's actively involved. He's going before you and I. He's working on people's hearts. He's convicting people that they're sinners in need of a savior. And sometimes for us, it's just a matter of picking some ripe fruit. And so the Lord was there. And the Lord, as Paul's preaching, opens Lydia's heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, Luke says. If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And so she persuaded us. And so, right there, after Lydia and her family get saved and then baptized, the church of Philippi is born. The church, the recipients of the letter that we're going to study for 10 weeks, it was born around AD 50 with the salvation of Lydia and her family. And as far as we know, it's the first church in Europe. So, this is big stuff. At least, it was definitely the first church Paul planted in Europe. At first, it's just the size of a home fellowship, right, in Lydia's home, but then we're gonna see at the end of the message that it grows over 11 years and it becomes a full fellowship that has elders, pastors, and deacons. Now, how many of you guys know that when we decide we're not gonna be apathetic Christians, but we're gonna be active in our faith, that we're not gonna live for ourselves, that we're gonna live for Jesus Christ, that we're gonna find out it's not about our agenda, it's about his agenda. We're gonna do whatever it takes to find out what he wants us to do and then we're gonna go for it until our dying breath. How many of you guys know that when we have that attitude, the devil gets mad? You see, the devil laughs at apathetic Christians. He's fine where some Christians are because they're not accomplishing anything that threatens his kingdom. But when Paul, Timothy, Silas, and Luke come to town, he got mad. And I can see Satan in the spiritual realm looking at these four guys thinking, they better not plant a church here. Philippi belongs to me. And how many of you guys know that when God moves like a chess match, Satan always moves? And so the next thing you know, Paul and Silas look behind them and they got this person that keeps following them around wherever they go, trying to distract them from ministry. Just know, if you begin to connect, and you begin to serve, and you begin to invest, you're not just coming and sitting in a pew twice a month, but you're being active in your faith, don't you know that if you make that decision, you start doing that, there's gonna be distractions, there's gonna be disappointments, there's gonna be people who get you upset or annoyed or whatever, there's gonna be things that happen, and you just need to press on for Christ. Because meaning, purpose happens in your life when you get active for the Lord. God gets glory when you get active for the Lord. And so what happens now is they're being followed around and distracted and Paul's getting annoyed. Luke calls her a slave girl. What does that mean? That means the Roman Empire was rampant with slavery and so this certain girl, I think she was probably in her 20s, this young lady, Um, she was owned by certain evil men. Not only that, Luke said that she had a, quote, spirit of divination. That meant that this poor young lady was demon-possessed and she was a medium. What that means is that she was kind of the go-between, the supposed vessel between the, quote-unquote, little G gods of that era and people, and so if you wanted to hear from the gods, you would go to this slave girl and she, you pay her money and she would shake or whatever and she would tell you what the gods want you to know. And so not only that, Luke said that she brought her owners much gain by fortune telling, which meant that her owners were financially dependent upon her work. This slave girl followed Paul and Silas around and she began to cry out. These men are servants of the Most High, the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. She kept saying it over and over, and one day turned into two, turned into three, to many days, and finally Paul's had it up to here, right? (laughs) And he turns around, and he he, he says to the demon inside of this lady, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. Like, I'm done. (laughs) And how many of you guys know that demons and devils are no match for the power of the Son of God. Right? And so that, that ick, that nastiness, that evil that was inside of her comes out of her, and man, she is so happy, she is so blessed, she feels clean, she feels free, good news for her, bad news for her owners. Because how many of you guys know that anyone who's in Christ is a new creation? Right, And so she no longer has the ability or the desire to generate revenue for her owners. So you think they're happy or mad? They're super mad. Now, a little while ago, Pastor Andrew said, how many of you guys are glad to live in America and you guys clapped your hands and you should? Because the freedoms that we have in this country compared to all the history of mankind, we're kind of an anomaly. And so they certainly didn't have these freedoms when Paul and Silas were around. And you know what these slave owners did? These angry men did without any police, without any trial, without any due process. They went to Paul and Silas and they grabbed them physically and they drug them to the local marketplace. They appeared before what's called the Bema seat, the city magistrates or the city rulers. And they said this in Acts 16. These men are, can you guys shout out the word? Jews, you see that? That's important, because this is anti-Semitism. Did you guys know that anti-Semitism is rising in the earth? And did you know that anti-Semitism is a sign of the end times? And so the Jews will continue to be hated more and more as the time of Jesus gets closer, but these men are Jews, and they're disturbing our city. Disturbing our city, really? Sharing the love of Jesus with people? Helping a young lady get free from ick and wickedness? Disturbing our city? So the fact that she used to um, shake and, and spew out a bunch of demonic lies, that wasn't disturbing because you guys were receiving money for that. But now all of a sudden, we're talking about the love of Jesus and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And look at this, look at, beware of mob violence. And the crowd joined in, attacking them. And the magistrates, the rulers, tore the garments off of Paul and Silas and gave orders to beat them with rods. What is this? This is pure anti-Semitism and pure anti-Christianity. The reason I put those two terms out there for you is because these Paul and Silas were Jews who were sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Satan's upset. And so, what's the next thing that happens? The rulers say, tear off their robes, beat them with robs. And Paul and Silas are like, what's going on? The whole city's upset. And, and bam, 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 blood is splattering all over the place. And it's kind of like, hey, you brought the gospel to Europe, welcome to Europe. But here's what I want to encourage everybody about we have no idea in our lifetime if things are going to get better or worse. Now, as I read the Bible, and I've been studying it since I was 17 years old, especially in the area of eschatology and end times, here's what I know, that as the time of Jesus gets closer, things will get worse, not better. That's just a fact of the Word of God. We can deny it all we want, we can say, I don't like it all we want, but you can't change truth, you gotta let truth change you. So if, it's a big if, but if the Lord comes back in our lifetime, things will get worse before they get a lot better with Jesus ruling. Okay, so as things get worse, if it happens in our lifetime, we have to prepare ourselves. And here's the question you need to answer. If you're listening, say amen here. Are you willing, am I really willing to continue to shine the light of truth into the darkness, even if there's a price to pay? Even if people get mad. Even if people attack us even if the rulers, so-called, of the city or of the government come against us. You wrestle with that question in your heart as I've wrestled with it in my heart. But after they inflicted, inflicted many blows upon Paul and Silas, they put their feet in stocks and they threw them in the prison. And I want you to picture this. Just, let's just slow down here for a moment because I really want this to impact you. I want you to picture, picture Paul and Silas and they're in prison in Philippi, in this dark, dank dungeon, and their backs are bleeding, and their feet are in stocks, and it's the middle of the night, and it probably stinks. And how do they respond? Is their response, man, when we get out of here, we're gonna riot in Philippi. We're gonna break windows. We're gonna steal stuff. We're just gonna give it right back to them. Was that their attitude? Was their attitude, I hate these people. How dare they treat us in such an unfair way? Man, I can't wait to get revenge. Was was their reaction, where's God? If there's a good God, why is there so much suffering? Why is my back bleeding right now? And why am I in prison if there's really a God? Is that how they responded? No. How did they respond? Check out Acts 16, 25. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were, please shout out the word, praying. praying. See this? They're praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening. There's always someone watching. The prisoners were listening to them. Now that's amazing to me. How in the world can these guys have so much joy even in the middle of all these difficult circumstances? They're singing. They're not spewing hatred. They're not getting upset. They're not getting violent. They're not getting bitter. They're singing to God. And they're praying to God. And I don't know how it went down, maybe Paul's like, a mighty fortress is our God, right? And Silas is like, a bulwark never failing, or whatever it is, but as they're singing, that actually comes 1600 years later with Martin Luther, but as they're singing, the, the, the city of Philippi starts to shake. Again, this is not a myth, this is not legend, this is eyewitness account, the historian Luke is there and he's writing this stuff down. And we have it in our Bibles, how cool is that? And so Philippi is shaking, God maybe wants to get into the song, and all of a sudden, the prison doors open up, and the chains fall off, and not just of Paul and Silas, but of everybody, this wakes up the prison guard who's sleeping, you shouldn't be sleeping on the job, and he looks through the darkness, he sees the doors are open, he assumes that all the prisoners are gone. What does that mean for him? Death, and so he's like, I'm ashamed of myself, I'm not gonna let my superior officers kill me, and so I'm gonna kill myself. Now this guy is facing a crisis. He's about to commit suicide. I don't know if he's gonna slit his neck, I don't know if he's gonna fall on his sword, we don't know, the Bible doesn't say, but just before he does it, he hears a voice coming out of the darkness. Hey, do yourself no harm, we're all here. It's Paul. Can you believe Paul? Loving the guy who probably was the one who just beat him half to death. Do you guys see what's happening in the, do you see what's happening in the Bible here? See, this is what we're called to be as Christians. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. You remember those? The Beatitudes, Matthew six, seven. That's how we're supposed to live. Hey, do yourself no harm. We're all here. And this guy's in a crisis. He's that close to death. And now all of a sudden, what does he do? He throws his sword down. He asks for a light. And he looks into the prison. He comes running in. He falls down at the feet of Paul and Silas. And then he says this amazing phrase. He says, looking up at Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Don't you guys wish some of your friends would ask you that question? Just keep praying, right? It's the Lord who opened up the heart of Lydia. It's evangelism is a work of the spirit. Just keep praying for them, they'll, they'll, they'll come. What must I do to be saved? And when they come to you, you gotta be ready with a good answer. Okay, so let's look at Paul and Silas's good answer to the Philippian jailer. He, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and your house. Isn't that cool? I am so glad they didn't say, well, Philippian jailer, yeah, we should thank God. I'm so glad the Philippian, uh, they, uh, Paul didn't look at the Philippian jailer and say, "Well, well, dude, you're a Gentile, so you're already behind the curve, but you're going to have to get circumcised, and then you're gonna have to keep all the 613 commandments, and I hope you make it, bud. Have a good day. So glad that's not the gospel. That's the bad news of religion. That's not the good news of the gospel. Ladies and gentlemen, I've said it a thousand times. We don't keep God's commandments to be saved. We keep them because we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Out of hearts of thankfulness. And so, of course, the Philippian jailer wants to hear more. So he like, come on over to my house. And that night, he brings Paul and Silas back, probably still bleeding, into his home. And he washes their scars. And Paul shares the gospel with the whole family. The whole family gets saved. The whole family accepts Christ. And they, after that, get baptized. It's such an amazing conversion story. It's such an amazing true story, and the little church of Philippi gets a little bit larger. So now it's not just Lydia and her household and the slave girl, but now it's them and the Philippian jailer and his household. So the church is growing. This is what God does. He grows churches one soul at a time. And now the home fellowship's getting a little bit larger. The next day, long story, I don't have time to get into it, Paul and Silas are released. They continue on their second missionary journey, and they go to a place called Thessalonica. There's a letter Uh, to that church, two of them actually, in your New Testament. But I have to return to the question. And that is, Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail, how in the world could they have so much joy in the middle of such negative circumstances? And that leads us to the theme of Philippians. And so this is so important. We're done with historical background. We're moving on to the theme. And that is joyful living in the midst of... How many circumstances? You guys see that? That's the key here. And so what I'm gonna do now is I'm gonna teach you a very important principle. This is worth alone. You come into church today, and this is a principle that if, if you learn this principle, you'll have it till your dying breath. It'll help you so much in your life. The theme of Philippians is joy. We see it in ev- multiple times, that concept, in every single chapter. But I gotta tell you, there is a huge difference between happiness and joy. This is what I wanna teach you, this is what I want you to get this afternoon. There is a big difference between happiness and joy. All right, so what is happiness? Happiness can be defined as a feeling of delight that is based on what kind of circumstances? Favorable. That means that something good happens and you have an emotion. It's a God-given emotion, it's a cool thing. It's called happiness. Right, if you're a sports guy like me, your team wins the big game, you're happy. I think I told you guys before, I grew up in Tampa in the 70s and 80s when the Buccaneers lost, I think, every single game, almost. And as a kid, I used to go And I used to watch them lose and lose and lose and lose. Okay, so what do you think, what emotion do you think I had this past January or February when the Buccaneers won the Super Bowl? (laughs) I was like, so happy, right? And then before that, when the Tampa Bay Rays won the American League pennant. So happy. And then tomorrow night, um, there's one win win, uh, away from winning a second Stanley Cup, the Tampa Bay Lightning, uh, two Stanley Cups um, in a row, and I'm gonna be like so happy if they can pull it out. By the way, did you know that they're changing the name of Tampa Bay? They're, they're, they're gonna call it Champa Bay. <laughs> yeah. Man, I, I feel the negative vibe from <laughs> Dolphin fans. Here's what you need to know. Tampa is two and a half hours away. Miami's two hours or so away. It's just 30 more minutes to Tampa. You should come on over, man. You'll be so happy, right? (laughs) And so happiness, that's this feeling that comes when your team wins, when you get the job, the dream job you always wanted. You're happy. You meet that person of your dreams and it's working out. You're happy. The doctor gives you a good report, right? You're happy, but this is the weakness of happiness. What happens when your favorite team has another losing season? What happens when you get laid off? What happens when that special someone you're hoping to spend the rest of your life with breaks up with you? What happens when the doctor says it's cancer? What happens when your loved one dies? We're talking about real stuff here this afternoon, right? Well, here's what happens. Like Elvis, happiness leaves the building. Why? Because at best, happiness is just a fleeting emotion. It comes and goes, and it depends on whether we're having good circumstances or bad circumstances. But listen to me. Joy is different. Joy, unlike happiness. Man, joy doesn't fluctuate. Joy is weighty. Joy is substantial. Joy is long-lasting. How do you define joy? Very different from happiness. Joy is a deep sense of well-being from the Lord. This is the only way you get it. This is why the local church is so important because we alone have this message. Nobody else is preaching this message. The the local church is. And, And if you don't have the Lord, you don't have joy. And so it's a deep sense of well-being from the Lord that abides in the heart of a person who knows that all is well between them and God. Praise God. While my wife and I were on vacation, we saw a little church with a little marquee, and it said on the marquee, a clear conscience makes a soft pillow. I like that, so important that we know all's okay between me and the Lord. And more important than a clear conscience, eternal life and joy. Where does it come from? It comes from Jesus Christ alone. Ladies and gentlemen, he's the source. He's the wellspring of joy. Did you guys know that the Apostle Paul refers to Jesus? This is crazy to me. In four little chapters, the Apostle Paul refers to Jesus over 40 times in Philippians. Over (laughs) 40 times in a letter whose theme is joy. What does that tell us? That tells us that joy and Jesus go together. They go hand in hand. And so regarding this, Peter said this. He said, though you have not seen him, you love him. Is that your testimony? this afternoon, and though you do do not now see him, you believe in him, and here it is, you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And so if you want more than happiness, if you wanna experience this inexpressible joy, here's what you gotta do, you got to turn to Jesus Christ in genuine repentance and faith. Not saying a little prayer for fire insurance and then living the, your life uh, um, unchanged because Christ certainly didn't come into your heart. Not you know trying to cross every T and dot every religious I, trying to work your way to heaven. That's not that's not Christianity. That's religion. No, you got to turn to Christ in genuine repentance and faith and receive him as the savior and the Lord of your life. And then and only then you can know for certain that all is well between me and God. And then and only then you will have this deep abiding joy in your heart. Again, joy is superior to happiness. Why? Because happiness is based on our circumstances that change. But joy is based on our relationship with Jesus and that's forever. So this is an important principle. And by the way, as we continue to grow in Christ, our joy increases no matter what trial we face, no matter what happens in our life. That's so important. And it leads me to this question. And that is, are you a thermometer or a thermostat? Now just think about this for a moment. Which one are you? Because it absolutely is a choice. You say, what are you talking about? What I'm saying is that a thermometer measures the temperature, but a thermostat sets the temperature. In other words, a thermometer, um, it allows its outside environment to determine how it kinda you know, feels, so to speak, on the inside. But a thermostat, no, 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 it doesn't allow its outward environment to determine anything, it sets the temperature for itself and for its outside environment. The example of this is Acts 16, 25, at midnight, Paul and Silas, backs are bleeding, feet are in stocks, they're in prison, and what do they choose to be? Do they say, we're gonna go riot, we're gonna go break windows, we're gonna, we hate these people, we're, we're, we're so upset, right? We want revenge. Where's God? I thought God was good. No, they weren't a thermometer, they were singing on the right side of your screen and praying to God, and the prisoners in Philippi heard them That means Paul and Silas, even though they were having a bad day, so to speak, were setting the temperature for the whole prison. You guys see that? And did you know that this stuff is not just for super saints of 2,000 years ago, it's for people like you and me today. We have the choice. And the only way you can be a thermostat is if you are a born-again, spirit-filled, joy-filled Christian. That is absolutely the only way it'll happen. And here's here's why this is important. You may be the only Bible that somebody ever reads. And so if you're walking around frowny-faced, depressed every single day, allowing your outside circumstances to dictate uh, your thermometer, are they gonna be attracted to Christ? No, but if you're filled with joy, then that will attract them to Jesus. We're talking about true joy and now we're gonna shift for just three minutes to Paul's opening comments to the church of Philippi. So if you're looking at Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, just say amen. amen. We'll just read five verses and I'll make some concluding remarks. But Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints, in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers, pastors, elders, and deacons. And so you see that this church has grown from a home fellowship to a full fellowship filled with saints, overseers, deacons. And I want you to notice that Paul calls all the Christians in Philippi saints. The reason I'm emphasizing this is because sainthood is not reserved for dead believers who may have accomplished something great in their life. Everybody who knows the Lord is a saint. You're a saint. You say, I don't feel like a saint. If you've turned to Christ, you're washed in the blood, you're clothed in Christ's righteousness, and that's why you're a saint. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, right? Verse two, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in verse three, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. So there he is, chained to a Roman soldier, under house arrest, and he's thinking about this church, and he's thanking God. Verse four, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with, what's the word at the end of four? Joy. So he's under house arrest, but he's still filled with joy. That's what Jesus can do for you. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And so the Philippians stuck by Paul through the years, praying for him, encouraging him, supporting him. By the way, that's one of the reasons he writes the letter is to thank them for their financial support. And so he's like thinking of Lydia and how God opened her heart. He's thinking of the slave girl and how God delivered her from the demon. He's thinking about the Philippian jailer and his family and that amazing conversion. He's thinking about how the church has grown for 11 years and now it's got overseers and deacons and they're reaching the community. And he's just like, God, thank you. Thank you so much for those Philippians. So here's my question as we close. Do you have true joy? And number two, are you bringing joy to other people? It all starts with Jesus Christ and being rightly related to him.